Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Economist at the University of Florida. And I am Marcelo Vallow, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production system. Today, our special guest is Dr. Sharon Makoviak. She's an associate professor and extension specialist on nutrient management and water quality located at the North Florida Research and Education Center in Quincy. Dr. Makoviak joins us today to talk about several aspects of pasture fertilization, including rate and timing of fertilization and nutrient use by plants. We also focus our conversation on cool season forages and under the transition between cool season and warm seasons during the springtime. Last meeting two weeks ago, we were discussing about fertilization, cool season fertilization, and I mentioned them the importance of that early shot of nitrogen in those cool season grasses because you need to get them going. That's still early forming. That's when you are going to get most of that growth potential in that first few weeks of growth. And if you don't do that, and even if you fertilize a lot later on, you lost your window. You are lost your opportunity. You're not going to get much. Then we start discussing about early fertilization and one shot because many producers cannot come back to the pasture is going to be expensive. So what's your take on that initial fertilization in terms of timing and rate on cool season grasses? Yeah, I, I guess I preference some of the early fertilization with is it in tilled land versus in a pasture. So in, in tilled land, it's gonna be exceedingly important because they have the ability to get up fast it's a short life cycle, so um, a lot of the uh, shoot and tiller formation happens early on, and if that nitrogen's not available, then um, sometimes some of those small grains never catch up. In pasture systems, you're fighting against the existing pasture, and some years are worse than others in terms of dormancy, and if you have Argentine Bahia grass, you get a good cross, it, it kind of stays dormant. If you've got the Pensacola types or Tipton 9 types, Riata, those kind, um, they'll keep re-greening every time it warms up a bit and then they're competing against the, um, the winter forage. So in that case, um, it's better to put some nitrogen, 30 pounds or so on in the beginning, maybe up to 50, but then just sort of wait and see what's going on. If, you're, if your summer grass is still going at it, you're probably gonna have a bad winter forage regardless. If they've settled down, then you can probably go and add more uh, depending on how it looks. And our eyes are so well calibrated, unless you're blue-green colorblind, you can pretty much tell when something's lacking nitrogen. It's, it's an easy way to tell. And nitrogen's what drives the system in terms of yield. Now, not necessarily in terms of quality, in terms of plant health. All the nutrients are important in that respect, but if you don't have enough nitrogen, then you know nothing else is going to happen as well. You're going to be um, just lacking in, in productivity. So and we could talk more about that. I'll say a fair number of folks will misdiagnose low sulfur with low nitrogen. In most pasture systems, we don't typically have a low sulfur issue, but those that have followed in row crops especially and don't have a, a lot of manure in the system, they'll typically have a sulfur deficiency. And so adding sulfur with your nitrogen is at least 10 pounds, no more than 20. 
10 to 20 pounds per acre of sulfur is really beneficial too. Otherwise, you might think you have a nitrogen deficiency and it's really a sulfur deficiency. So, Cheryl, when, when, we, when, we, when we get a first shot of fertilizer, normally what I recommend the, the agents and the farmers to do is that 30 pounds, probably one or two weeks after planting, because that's when you start, your, your plants are starting to grow. They are already out, they're already emerged, and they will be able to use. And then come back, come back with a, a 50, 50 pound fertilization of, uh, of nitrogen, maybe around 45, 60 days. Then one of the questions they asked us last week was, what about right at planting? We dump 60 pounds of nitrogen. And my concern in those, especially in those seed lands, till, till uh, grounds, prepared seed bed is uh, nitrogen loss. We're going to lose a lot because first plants are not using second because there's a lot of time between the plants are going to be able to use most of that nitrogen. Do you have an, a parameter, like an idea for us on how much money in nitrogen we're losing with the, that one early application? Well, now, Marcelo is part of the winter forages on the dairies, and we've um, and I just finished sampling there, and I took nitrate readings, in-field nitrate readings, um, and I put the 50 pounds because I wanted a calibration strip against what the farmer was doing or the dairyman was doing um, to calibrate some equipment. And um, in the beginning, I could see some benefit, and later I didn't see it. And so you would say, oh, well, one, it either didn't need it, or two, um, we lost it because I did put it out, very soluble nitrate, ammonium nitrate at planting. And um, the nitrates told a different story. Those nitrates were there. So with winter forages in a tilled system, and dairies will put out leach uh, irrigation, unless you get a real big rain, you know, three, four inches at a time, I think it's pretty much there. And it might, you know, they might have to get a little bit more root to get it. I don't think we have big losses in that case, Marcelo, because um, th those plants, they're growing fast too. And, and so I, I think you're okay there, but if you have the option, I mean, you got to balance the cost, the cost of going back out in the field multiple times and what you can potentially lose. So yeah, if everything's perfect, it'd be great to put 30 pounds out early, come back again and put the other 50 pounds out. But you know, I think there's there's got to be a little more work on that in terms, especially for extension. It's like, okay, how practical is this? Or how much are we really losing? Potentially, you could lose a lot, but maybe more often than not, we don't. You know, we're usually planting around the drier time of our year, too. We're not getting a lot of big storms. And by the time that forage comes up, you know, now they can reach that nitrogen anyway. So, Just my yeah. personal preference and experience, I like to do two applications. I think farmers and ranchers have enough to do. And then if, unless there's just some massive need for dry matter, long stem five, or where we got to produce some emergency forage, that would be the only reason I would think about going back out again. I mean, it really, it depends on what you're trying to get to. Are you trying to get energy? Are you trying to get quality? Are you trying to, you know, there's different ways to, there's not one answer. You can do different things for whatever your needs are. So the dairy producers are totally different than a lot of the ranchers are. So one of the things I wanted you to, to just briefly discuss again, Cheryl, was the, just looking at the difference between prepared seed bed and then when we talk about no-tilled into Bermuda grass or Bahia grass pastures, how you would handle the, the fertility issues. Uh, you said 
you know, we don't really want to go too strong uh, with that first application in a uh, no-till bahia grass, Bermuda grass pasture. Can you go a little bit further into that for me? Well, the, the, the key, I think, is this, that the grass is going to compete and pull that nitrogen away from the, the winter forage. And they'll probably never release it again. So once it's gone, it's gone. And, that, and that's the problem. You're really, you know, intercropping rather than overseeding in those cases. Yes. Um, yep. Sandra, what's, what's your feeling about the folks here, especially in, in this uh, north central Florida locality region here, uh, about uh, using cool season forages for grazing or for horses? I think it's awesome when you can. I, the challenge is always rainfall and it's so unpredictable. And it just seems like figuring out when the best time to plant. And um, you get much further south than Gainesville, you don't have that many nights that are cool a large part of the year. So North Florida, it's a great option. And I'll say we've had really wet springs the last few years, but there's times when we don't get any rain after, certainly after March until June. So things play, there's a real, really bad spell in the spring, but also we have kind of a fall drought. So it's a great option if you can plan it well and, and, and work, around, work around the rain. Cheryl, could you talk just a little bit about the legume component and how that, you know, a lot of times we'll include white clover, red clover, or crimson clover into some of these mixes. Can you talk yeah. about how that legume component, like how does the nitrogen fixation, where, where's the benefit coming? Well, you know, for summer perennials, we have a perennial peanut and Jose Dubay and others are showing great benefits of that. But when it comes to winter annual legumes, again, management's really important. You can have that contribute from like no nitrogen to up to a couple hundred pounds or at least a hundred pounds per acre of nitrogen. But it's all in the management. If you don't let that plant grow enough to fix nitrogen, it's not gonna do much, much good. Um, in the best world, you're managing well, so you're producing enough you know, forage. It looks like you've got legume in the system then it's, um, it could be cycling phosphorus and sulfur, calcium up from uh, deeper in the profile that actually eventually when it turns over in the summer contribute to the grasses. Um, the nitrogen alone, of course, can contribute. I've got crimson that I let reseed on its own and my uh, bahia grass, I have a fence and I've never let the seed get on the other side really because I mow it too frequently. But the side that has a crimson, you see a major gain in um, and yield just for those first, uh, probably about six weeks or so after a summer green up. It do, I don't see any lingering effect in terms of you know, productivity, but for that first part of the early summer, it really shows some benefit there. And um, you know, so that's good. And of course the quality itself, the, the livestock feeding on it, it's a higher quality. So your overall feed is gonna be higher quality, uh, higher crude protein um, and some other nutrients as well. But, um, the key again, um, if you have sandier soils, think of legumes as in terms of seed size, the bigger the seed and you drill it in, the more likely you're going to have su success. So uh, lupin, uh, winter, winter um, Austrian winter pea um, and vetch for drier soils or sandier soils are a better bet than say crimson, red clover, ball clover, those things. Um, but where we're at, where it's heavier soil, all those work really well. 
the other thing I noticed about the legumes and, and, and many other low input systems is like, is that you, you need to build up that soil health, that nitrogen in the soil a little bit. So it's very common to fail, at least I do that, fail in that first year and it's quite frustrating, but then things pick up and, and progressively get better, right? I have noticed that on my own place where I have places where, you know, when the crimson's there and it's doing great and, but I also have all this volunteer vetch and other things. And another thing that um, we, we kind of ignore or willful ignorance is micronutrients. We don't pay a whole lot of attention to them. So it's zinc and copper and, and molybdenum and boron and, and things of that sort. Um, legumes tend to need more of those than the grasses, but they all need them. And we'll add those, say add a micronutrient packet, which is usually oxide forms that are very sparingly soluble, sometimes fritted material. Um, people can't afford more expensive mm -hmm. things, but my, my thought is, you know, maybe it's every once five years, maybe more, but if you could get your sort a source, now having animals and if they're well-managed, you're getting some manure and they're feeding on mineral and that and spreading some micronutrients, but um, getting some bios, class A, double A biocells or getting poultry litter or, or some of these others that contain all the micronutrients you need um, and in organic forms mostly so that they're a little more available. Um, if you can get that in once in a while, just to, to build some of that up, to me, it's sort of an easy way to do it. Um, but um, I think we need, we need more look at some of the micros and their interactions, what's going on. I find, I saw this down south first and it eventually happened up in the Quincy area, same types of studies where we have bahia grass alone or grown with perennial peanut or perennial peanut alone. And in Quincy, when you grew that perennial peanut with the bahia in the beginning, first three years or so, you could hardly see the peanut. I mean, you could see it, it was in there, but you had to move away all the Argentine bahia grass to, to really know it's there. Down south, we couldn't get the grass to grow and we couldn't get it to grow with the peanut until we put nitrogen out. And it's like, so it didn't seem to share too well. And then finally in Quincy after year five, our bahia mixed with peanut is mostly peanut now. Like it's overtaken the bahia grass and it's not, it's sharing a little bit of nitrogen, but it's not sharing enough to make that grass very vigorous at all. And so you think about in terms of energy, what it takes the peanut to fix that nitrogen, it's very expensive. So why would they just be giving it away for free? So I, you know, there's probably, you know, if you're returning some of that material to the soil, you're probably gaining some. If the animals then the excreta is getting there, then it's providing the nitrogen that way. And so let's get let's move into warm season pastures now. Um, so moving from uh, out of cool season, we get into April, where you know we've got April to late September growth of bahia grass. You know, can you talk about some different scenarios where you would see producers, you know? in terms of where it's optimal for fertilization? Because we talk about taking a soil test and we talk about you know, uh, applying that fertilizer, but I don't think it talks about application time. Yeah, well, Bill Blue, who um, was in my department, an agronomist who did a lot of work with hay grass 40, 50 years ago even, and one of his papers said, 
in terms of bahia grass, it really didn't matter all that much when you put the fertilizer out in terms of seasonal yield. But what dominates the yield is going to be photo period. So regardless of how much nitrogen you're putting out, the greatest yield is going to be, think about the longest day, somewhere, somewhere between the end of June and mid-July is really going to get most of your yield. A lot of folks say they have too much bahia grass in the middle of the summer and they want more on either end. So if you're th thinking in terms of nitrogen budget, when you start seeing it green up and, and the, we're, the cold is mainly over, so up here it's probably in another couple weeks or so, you could probably start adding nitrogen out. You guys down in the Ona area in that, I know people that apply it late February, so um, some have already probably applied. You're going to get some more yield, but you'll never get the yield you're going to get, say, in July. So think about how you want to use that nitrogen to throttle up or throttle down. And so the problem I have more than people over applying nitrogen is people not applying any nitrogen or applying just nitrogen, no potassium. Probably no potassium is the number one deficient nutrient in terms of when someone cuts something out, that's what they cut out first. Um, so I'd like to see people add more potassium and, and probably more micronutrients or at least consider that. Um, so nitrogen timing, for bahia, not all that important. It's more about how you want to manage your forage. If you want hay, put 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 a dose out. Regardless of what you do now, put a dose out probably towards the end of May. Um, again, if the rains aren't there, it's just going to sit, and you don't want it to be lost if it's urea. Um, I know down there you can get ammonium nitrate. We can't get that. We're mainly urea, so you want to make sure you have some rains available before you put it out. But um, if you're maximizing, say for you want to do a hay cutting in your pasture or something, I'd go for that. Um, and then drop it off a little bit, maybe no more than 50 pounds at a time after that, if you need it at all. But again, color is a good example. We also applied nitrogen because the question came, do you gain anything at the end of the season by putting out more nitrogen? So we um, took a discarded field and bahia grass that hadn't been fertilized in a couple of years. And on August 1st, we put out different rates of nitrogen. And then come September 1st, we harvested it and compared it. And we got, and this was um, Argentine, we got a good amount of forage for that late summer harvest. So 50 pounds in, uh, even though we don't necessarily recommend it, 50 pounds in August, if you're looking to bring some forage back, did really well for us up in uh, the Mariana area. Marcel, I think Cheryl brought up a, a point that may, you know, it goes into the question that you had a moment ago was uh, in terms of the improved bahia grasses, you actually limit some of your cool season annual forage growth by adopting those cool season, those improved forage varieties. So if it's something you might want to intercede in the future, you might be better sticking with the Argentine. Um, that doesn't have that extended. You get the majority of growth in that June, July, August, and then it kind of starts going the other way. So there's there's potential there for alternatives. Yeah, and I always think of the best grazing is Argentine, and the best hay are the improved varieties. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you got big enough land where you can do a little of both, diversity is always good. Okay, so we've covered cool season forages. We've covered warm season forage, warm season perennials. What about warm season annuals? What is your typical 
application that you're thinking about some pearl millet or some sorghum Sudan grass? Yeah, I don't work a whole lot with summer annuals. So yeah. uh, Marcelo and yourself probably could have uh, more to say on that than I can. Yeah, it's um, mo most of what I do, I would probably not recommend most cattlemen. Uh, but we're, we're, we're on 180 pounds, 220 pounds, depending on what we're talking about, corn, sorghum. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Palazzo is like, whoa. Yeah, it's a lot. But we also are looking into the area system. We're also looking into spoon feeding throughout the season. Start with that 30 pounds, you know, 25, 30 pounds liquid on row, in furrow with a little bit of zinc, a little bit of sulfur and phosphorus. Normally, we're adding 40 pounds of phosphorus to those, uh, to the, to those crops. And then we carry on with uh, potassium and nitrogen, at least in three or four applications, being the last two overhead. So we're, go, we're getting a lot of nitrogen, but spread over the season. At no-till on the plains, they talk about manganese applications, and I've never heard anyone else in extension talk about manganese applications. So I was just curious if you could say a couple words for me. We're low, we're low on all the, all the micronutrients, um, and in dairies in particular, um, manganese, it, it doesn't compete as well against uh, zinc and copper, mm -hmm. so that's why, and, and they have a lot of extra zinc in their dairy um, waste, so that's, that becomes a real problem for corn. A lot of people have started adding a liquid manganese. I don't know what the, how, if they're putting it in with liquid nitrogen or what they're putting it in with but they're putting out a liquid manganese. Yeah, well, and then some of our soils are actually naturally real high in manganese. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the panhandle, some of the altosols, and, and if you had really low pH, you could actually, just like iron, you can actually have toxic levels of manganese and iron are super high, but we'll have them in the hundreds of parts per million in bahia grass um, without applying any manganese. And it's just based on the mineralogy of some of these soils. Fantastic. Well, I think if we don't have any more questions. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today, Cheryl. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It was fun, guys. Thank you for joining us on this Cow Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, ideas, follow-ups, or comments, please reach out to us through our email, forages at ifas.ufl.edu. That is forages at ifas dot ufl.edu or find us on our social media uf.forages on instagram uf forage team on facebook or uf ifas forages on youtube